Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. One of the upsides of a return to normal-ish politics is a more varied range of topics for us to discuss, away from Brexit, Brexit and Brexit. On this week's show, James Marriott, the Times Deputy Books Editor, makes his podcast debut, taking a critical look at the cultural hinterland of the Labour leadership contenders. Times columnist David Aronovich comes over all Taylor Swift and says we need to calm down about the royals. But first, Lucy Fisher, the Times defence editor, on the small matter of avoiding World War Three. Reckless, impulsive, terrifying. That was the initial verdict on Donald Trump's shock order to American generals to obliterate one of Iran's most senior military commanders in a drone strike. But the US has avoided kinetic retaliation from Tehran, halted an increasingly aggressive Iranian regime in its tracks, and forced NATO to agree to step up in the Middle East. As the prospect of World War III has subsided, has Donald Trump proven the madman theory and pulled off a foreign policy masterstroke? So, Lisa, I suppose we should begin at the beginning. As defence editor of The Times, when you heard that Soleimani had been killed, did you think, blimey, I better get my combat gear on, we're off to war? Or what, what was your initial reaction? That was exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> it was 7am on, on a Friday, a day I'm not usually leaping out of bed by the end of the week. And I couldn't believe it when I saw all the alerts um, on my phone uh, from overnight. It it was just such a seismic uh, event to happen. It's like a drone strike on General Snick Carter, the head of the British military. It's just, you know, the convention is you do not go after other states, you know, senior leadership unless you um, unless you're in line for some serious... Uh, kinetic revenge. Kinetic <laughs> retaliation does sound like a very posh way of saying war. War. Yes, um, or at least, you know, um, military strikes or, or attacks. And of course, Iran did respond with some missile strikes, but it was the rogue missile which has caused the biggest problem, bringing an extraordinary mess, bringing down a, a passenger jet. Yes, it, it, it's a sort of strange irony, isn't it, that um, Iran has, uh, in recent years, concentrated on improving the precision and accuracy of its missiles and therefore was able, in its retaliation, you know, it had to do something to, to, to save face after having um, Qasim Soleimani killed, to make sure that when it attacked these American bases on Iraqi soil, that it didn't hit um, any personnel or any serious um, infrastructure inside those bases. And yet it was human error um, among the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps that then led to the accidental um, downing of the Ukrainian airliner's flight 
total tragedy, 176 people killed. We're seeing that the backlash to that play on in, in uh, cities across Iran, the third day of protests yesterday, and they show no sign of abating. David, what did you make of it? What, have you been surprised by how this has played out? It just goes to show what an incredibly difficult place Iran is to read and what uh, and where the power lies or the balance of power lies at any given time. So we saw immediately after the Soleimani uh, assassination, those enormous crowds and the claim was made, and I think a lot of people believed it, this has cemented support for a un- relatively unpopular regime by the populace. And therefore, in terms of gaining uh, internal change, uh, the assassination, that's partly what it was aimed at, which actually it wasn't, uh, would have been counterproductive. And then, because the regime itself delayed for three days before admitting responsibility, in those three days, incidentally, denying responsibility in the strongest possible terms, that has immensely strengthened people who are demonstrating against the regime. How can both these things be simultaneously true? Are they the same people turning out to mourn Soleimani and saying death to America on the one hand, turning out on next Wednesday morning to say death to Khamenei? doesn't seem likely does it so what it shows to you is that you have an incredibly difficult situation but i would i, I don't know what Lucy's estimate is but my estimation is is that the regime is still pretty much in control it will see off these uh, street protests though they're though they're problematic and that the big prize for the iranians is the withdrawal of the americans from the region so what they will want to do is to do things that put pressure on the iraqi government to get the americans out of iraq and around the area and they will then claim that any kind of withdrawal of that sort which incidentally fits into things that trump has said he wants to do in some ways although not in quite in that way is a victory in return for uh, for for the ill that was done to them I agree with you on one thing and I disagree with you on another. Um, I agree that I imagine the Iranian regime probably will see off the, this latest bout of protests. Um, I think they are significant. After last year, you saw a lot of people feeling the economic pain from the sanctions levied by the US on Iran um, taking to the streets on economic grounds. You've now got a new group and it's a different class of people who are coming out of the woodwork to complain about the cultural and social uh, lack of freedom uh, in, in the country. So I think those two groups combining is a significant um, kind of coalition. But of course, Iran doesn't allow official opposition, you know, it vets it. So it is a febrile time in the country at the moment. They've got parliamentary elections coming up on February the 21st. But, you know, the opposition, there's no real opposition for people to kind of coalesce around in in political organisation terms. What what I disagree with you on, David, is the idea that Iran, um, that this recent period of tension will lead to the US leaving Iraq. The Iraqis don't want it. You know, we know now that, you know, um, uh, Adel Abdel Mahdi, the Iraqi caretaker prime minister, has begged the US to stay. And the Iranians themselves, one of their big fears is ISIS, you know, taking hold uh, again in the region. Um, uh, and and be- the only way to secure um, to secure the Iraqi territory is with the US there. You know, they're airlifts, their intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance assets are absolutely crucial alongside their 5,000 odd troops they've got on the ground. I just don't see that, that, you know, the US will be leaving anytime soon. So so just to be clear, I didn't say that it would necessarily come about, um, but that's that's their objective. And insofar as they achieve it, I mean, I I take your point entirely about the Iraqi government's actual strong unwillingness to go ahead with pushing the Americans out. But you could argue that 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 moment, the possibility of that moment came closer as a result of the events of the last two or three weeks. And for me, so just that would be uh, interestingly, you know, Donald Trump. One of his big pledges in his first four-year yeah. term was end, you know, ending the forever war. 
cause. And yet, so you know, going back to my initial proposition, has this been you know a, a crowning success of his foreign, foreign policy so far? In the short term, I think it has. In that, you know, he's killed a commander who was behind the deaths of hundreds of American troops in Iraq from 2004 onwards. And he's, you know, put the Iranian regime back in its place after, you know, it might was mining tankers. It seized the Stena Impero, a British ship last year, attacks on Saudi Aramco oil processing facilities. In the short term, it is a success for America. But in the longer term, this is only going to lead to more US troops in the region, I'd bet, rather than fewer. It is sort of a classic um, situation with Donald Trump that he initially said he wanted to bring all US troops home. The very fact of Iran wanting all US troops to go home will probably make him want to have more troops there because of his well, contrarianism. Well, but, that, but, but in a way, what you could say is there's a kind of both those countries' policies, Iran and Americas, are contradictory. Trump wants to curtail Iran's influence in the region, but also wants to bring America out. <laughs> yeah, well, the biggest way in which you curtail Iran's influence in the region is by having your, your forces there. Likewise, the Iranians want the Americans out, but can't seem to forego the business of provoking them every turn, which actually effectively keeps them in. And that's why, you know, you feel at some point or other along this process, something's got to give. You're just not quite sure what it is. Lucy may have a better idea what it is. (laughs) Well, I think the significant next step is the next round of sanctions. You know, they are already really biting the uh, Iranian economy. And interestingly, another irony here is that Iran relies heavily on the business it does with Iraq and a lot of the illegal money laundering. So it very much needs the Iraqi economy to stay stable. And that's um, predicated on, you know, US underpinning its security. James, let's bring you in here. David touched on it a bit um, uh, a minute ago, but trying to read what Iran is like as a country is incredibly difficult, isn't it? Because it's so... There isn't even really a a, a single government in you know regime that you can pinpoint who you know who is in charge never mind the culture and the society yeah what i was very interested to read about which was something that hadn't occurred to me was that a lot of iranian cultural figures and tv anchors and things were announcing on their sort of instagram uh, accounts and their social media their objections to the government and it hadn't occurred to me that there was that sort of freedom within iranian society and i wonder how much of a role social media plays in what's happening in Iran. The last big set of demonstrations, they closed down all the internet and all internet facilities and all Iranian social media for uh, the dura- for a large part of the duration. So we didn't actually get reliable reporting out of Iran until several days into those demonstrations when hundreds of people have been killed. So they can do it. But James is right that the, the sort of, if you don't follow these things that closely, you might be under the impression that there is sort of total con- you know regime control and you wouldn't necessarily I expect people who appear on the TV to be able to to side with opponents of the regime on social media. You know, what we're seeing this week yeah. with, you know, the Taekwondo Olympic medal winner has defected saying she'd rather live in exile rather than in, you know, a state of lies and hypocrisy and sycophancy. TV stars, I saw one of the chess champions speaking out. It, it, it is extraordinary, this cascade of protests, but it is very unusual. I think it speaks to how devastated people are by, by, this, by this crash and the sort of the the bid to cover it up in those initial days has set off this um, this descent. I suppose we should just touch on uh, Britain's role in all of this. Boris Johnson was on holiday when it happened. He didn't come back. We didn't see him for about a week. And then he finally uh, appeared in the House of Commons. He seems to be treading an interesting line with Donald Trump, not endorsing the decision, but equally saying nobody will shed any tears about it. 
Um, and then uh, on Tuesday morning, he did his first interview, I think for a month, uh, definitely the first one of this year, in which his tone towards Donald Trump was much less enthusiastic than I... It definitely seemed fostier to me, talking about how if Donald Trump doesn't like Barack Obama's nuclear deal with Iran, he needs to come up with his own one. He's, he's the so-called deal maker. He was also, you know, he dismiss, dismissively called him Trump rather than the president or whatever. Do you, do you detect the shift, Lucy? I do, yes. Um, I think it could be a potentially pretty significant one. I think, firstly, it was useful that the time of year that this all kicked off with the death of um, Soleimani was just in that kind of post-New Year period where a lot of people aren't quite back, back at work yet. And Boris Johnson, being in Mustique, um, allowed him to sort of keep his head below the parapet and, you know, give Britain that strategic distance from this pretty erratic um, decision taken by Trump. For me, a really key intervention was at the weekend, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, saying ahead of this big defence review coming up, that Britain needs to be more independent from Washington in terms of strategy. Now, of course, he, there's one sense in which he would say that, you know, he's about to argue for much more money for his department to beef up the British military. But you have to remember that the past three quinquennial defence reviews have all been based on the premise that we would never fight another war without America, so that we could rely on them for I-star assets and all sorts of capabilities. And it seems to me that there is, um, right at the centre of government, a movement now to think, we need to think carefully about that. You know, there's two schools of thought that the UK has tended to, Whitehall view has tended to think Trump is an anomaly and whether he gets another four-year term or not, after him, things will go back to normal. And the European view has been more, this is this is the state of things now. You know, populism is, is here to stay, you know, the other side of the Atlantic. And I think that the UK is, is perhaps coming a bit more around to that view and, and keen more to ally with, with Paris and Berlin, even though we're getting out of the EU. And also, you, you know, in, if, and it doesn't seem that likely at the moment, if in the event of a Democrat winning, beating Donald Trump, there's no obvious sign that they are any more enthusiastic about entering into wars with or without the UK. You know, the relationship does seem to be changing. I think so. I mean, I, I think it could be different, actually, if a Democratic candidate won the US election. And I think it might actually play a bigger role, foreign policy play a bigger role in in the forthcoming presidential election than it than it normally does. I think this sort of America first isolationism is a very kind of Trumpist rhetorical sort of trope and policy. And I think that Democratic candidates might might be more interested in having a, a role in the world, and particularly because it it does affect the U.S. in particular in terms of things like terrorism, you know, the sort of culture of of um, inward migration. I think I think it could play um, it could be a dividing issue. Well, particularly I suppose if Democrats point out that what Donald Trump said he was going to do and then what he an- actually ended up doing is not necessarily. <laughs> panned Absolutely. out quite like that um well let's move on i'm sure we'll come back to around uh, what's happening elsewhere in the world but let's come much closer to home uh, this is james marriott jess phillips loves britney spears song toxic and reckons the secret diary of adrian mole is the book that changed her life rebecca long bailey says her favorite hobby is having a chinese takeaway emily thornbury once closed a dj set by blasting toto's africa does a politician's cultural hinterland matter and do voters even care well, you should know, James. You're, you know, you're the deputy books editor. Do you think it matters? It matters to me. Uh, and in, there's a snobbish part of me that would like to believe every politician really wants to just go home every evening and curl up with Wordsworth. But I think that's probably not true. I think it's really interesting what politicians say they like culturally. I remember in the 2015 Labour Party elections, Jeremy Corbyn came out to say that his favourite song was Imagine by John Lennon, which I think was interpreted by his fans as a sign of his immense sincerity and his slightly endearing sort of 
over-sincere attitude to politics. He also weirdly said that his favourite book was Ulysses by James Joyce, which I think if you're a fan, you interpret as, you know, him being probably very well read and very sincere. I think a lot of people, including me, are sceptical that he's actually read it. Because when, when he was pressed, he seems to say that he prefers dipping into it than reading it from the beginning, <laughs> beginning to the end. But for the current crop of Labour leadership candidates, information about what they like doing in their free time and what they like culturally is much thinner on the ground. I think there were two ways of looking at this. Because there's the question, when they actually answer it honestly sometimes accidentally or they might have tweeted something in the past about a song they like and then there's the sort of carefully focused grouped uh, overly contrived you know D- gordon brown being woken up in the morning by the arctic yeah. monkeys and all that sort of stuff and it just doesn't ring true but actually maybe jess phillips liking toxic and adrian mold that sort of sounds about right yeah and i i kind of dug those facts out of her twitter feed and some guardian profile from a while ago and i feel like that probably is her although i do quite like the idea that Jess Phillips doesn't really like Toxic and secretly is going to the opera in the evenings, but can't tell anyone about it. (laughs) David, does this stuff matter? Uh, It doesn't really, no, not to voters. Um, uh, It tends to matter to us. Um, In my experience, most of the people I knew, especially when I was younger, who went into politics, tended to be people who, who didn't read novels. Uh, people who read novels did one kind of a thing. Most people who went into politics read political biography. Um, some of our most best-versed political journalists here haven't read anything but political biography for about 30 years or social psychology or something like that. In other words, something that's kind of re- very relevant to that set of particular uh, set of interests. And I, I remember one one friend, uh, uh, acquaintance of uh, of my youth, Peter Mandelson. Uh, you couldn't bring him anywhere close to anything resembling uh, a novel or anything kind of you know, significantly cultural. It just wasn't important enough to him. And, and a lot of politicians were like that. Voters don't care. It's like voters don't really care. I mean, so Labour's having this big argument about whether it should have a working class leader. Actually, voters don't really care whether your leader's working class or not, as they've already shown by voting oh. for Boris Johnson. It, <laughs> it isn't about that. It's it's about all kinds of other kind of inchoate things about whether you speak to people uh, or not or where people locate you within their within their, it was much more important for tony blair for instance to suggest that he genuinely was somebody who knew about football which he does and did than it was that he had kind of read all kinds of novels and i don't think emmanuel macron's popularity gets a kind of great lift because he is the one president who can quote significant le- amounts of racine uh, <laughs> from, from from heart um so it it doesn't matter but we really would like it to we would like to think that we are the kind of people who would make a choice based on the cultural hinterland of our politicians but you know what we're not because we're far too philistine for that in reality lucy what does matter though is authenticity isn't it and if if someone keeps saying things which are clearly not true or just don't ring true yeah then that this is a route into sort of whether or not people, you know, this pass the smell test with voters. I think it's absolutely right. I mean, I remember when um, David Cameron couldn't keep a tab on which football team he supposedly <laughs> re- supported. Some point saying it was West Ham, another time saying it was Aston Villa before being corrected by a member of the lobby and sort of looking, uh, at least having the, the good grace to, to blush. Um, yeah, I think it is about uh, authenticity to uh, to a larger degree. Um, and, and it does depress me that there is so much focus grouping. I, I happen to know someone who was um, on an internship at CCHQ and was part of the sort of um, the, the focus group or the team deciding what David Cameron's Desert Island Discs should be. <laughs> and my pal always came, claims credit for getting a Bob Dylan track on there. And I find that depressing. I think voters ca- can feel text sort of, you know, they can intuit when when something is is falsified. But I, but I also think when things are real, they can 
they can speak to an element of of a, of a person or their soul even that that can mean something to voters. And I think you know you don't think of Ken Clark without thinking of jazz or someone like Michael Heseltine and his sort of interest in horticulture and all these trees he's planted. You know his obsession with legacy and immortality. It, it those things I think can kind of cohere to to, to pillars of their kind of character. And you're right. It's when it all falls down because David Cameron, but every week seemed to have a different obscure. Scandinavian band he was listening to. I remember there was a, well, there was a whole period where it first aid kit were his go-to sort of. Oh, Sam's got me into this really cool and groovy. You know, yeah. can you whistle any of them? No, probably you can't. You know what you're talking about. I think the weirdest example is Boris Johnson, who makes relative to most politicians a big deal about quoting snatches of poetry in Latin and Greek. But I'm not really sure how much time in his life Boris Johnson spends reading Kipling or the Iliad. And it's there's an interesting, um, in, I think, interview from quite a while ago I came across where he kind of seems to confess that he did a huge amount of reading when he was about 14 and all his cultural life was developed then. And he's sort of just replaying the kind of top 10 hits of when he was 14 and read Kipling and was obviously taught the Iliad at Oxford. And it's just, it's sort of strange because it's, very performative, but we kind of accept that as part of the authentic Boris Johnson. I mean, I guess like all things we accept as many things with him, we accept as act as the authentic him. But also, it's slightly he's been. I think he's been slightly exposed by constant exposure. That actually, when he was dipping in and out of the sort of public consciousness, occasionally repeating the same handful of Latin Greek phrases or whatever yeah. it was he was doing was fine. But him doing it every single day during the election campaign, he's going, oh, he's doing that. Is, the problem is, if, you, if you're not in a position to switch off, in other words, if you feel you are going to be judged for your next set of votes on your answer to the question of what, what your favourite disc is or what book you've read, it's not really a circumstance under which you're going to kind of really give it both barrels and tell the truth. Like, I actually, I haven't read a novel for 25 years. I just haven't had the time. And actually, I'm not that interested. I'm not that well read. Um, so... So one of the things that you can do is you can anthologize. So I remember years and years and years ago when I was on the NUS executive of the National Union students with uh, Charles Clark, he was then the president, and he had up in his wall a Pablo Neruda poem. I love Pablo Neruda poems. I've got Pablo. And I said, oh, yes, Pablo Neruda. I said, uh, uh, and which book did you get it from? And he said, the anthology of socialist verse. Because <laughs> that's the quick way of doing it. <laughs> I think they said Alan Partridge thing, when somebody said, what's your favourite album? And he said, uh, the best of the Beatles. <laughs> 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 I remember during the Tory leadership campaign when we got in, we did dig around in the sort of the the um, cultural hinterland of the candidates. And one of the questions that Boris Johnson was asked was, "What's your favourite uh, scene from a movie?" And he said it was the scenes of multiple retribution killings at the end of The Godfather, which was quite a good clue to how he then approached his first reshuffle, where he just took everyone who'd ever crossed him and uh, booted him out the door. But maybe maybe it doesn't make it. So based on your research, James, digging out, who's going to win the Labour leadership contest? The most cultured candidate I can find is Jess Phillips, probably because she's been more interviewed, she's had more chance to talk about things. But, I mean, although she's, I think it would be fair to say Jess Phillips isn't, isn't an officiado of high culture, but, you know, she's on record, she likes Britney Spears, she says she enjoys Love Island, um, she enjoys 1990s R&B. I think we sort of believe her on this. I find it very hard to imagine Keir Starmer reading a novel or listening to music. <laughs> or having any event, fun at all. Or having fun. He did an event with the Camden Labour Party uh, where they asked him his favourite... They asked him for his Desert Island Discs, and the one he wanted to take was um, the EU Anthem, 
which I think we suspect is a political answer, oh, not one that he actually believes. Oh, to joy. Maybe we could take Barry Gardner with him and he <laughs> whistle it for him. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't heard, if we, I think we might have even played that on the podcast before, but if we could dig out Barry Gardner whistling. One, oh, of, the great, oh, well, one of the great satirical novels yet to be written uh, has Barry Gardner as its hero and so on. So he's a kind of, he's a cultural event yet to happen. I think one of the great satirical novels would just be a biography of Barry Gardner, an entirely yeah, factual account of, of what he's been up to. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's leave that there. I'm sure we'll come back to the Labour leadership contest when um, any of them have done anything remotely interesting. After the break, we turn our attention to the small matter of the royal family. We'll be back in a sec. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Chorley. Joined in the studio by James Marriott, Lucy Fisher, and this is David Ivanovich. It's a cliche to say the media overdo royal stories, but boy, do they overdo royal stories. Maybe I should say we overdo royal stories. You'd have thought from the hysteria that this was Edward VIII all over again. It isn't. It has no important constitutional ramifications. It's an adjustment that's been coming for some time, as it was inevitable that sooner or later a prince or princess or duke or duchess would say that their life's ambition was not to be ogled at by the world as though they were exotic zoo animals. Now it's happened, and we can cope. Well, isn't it just a nice soap opera that uh, is a good distraction from, you know, the last three years of Brexit nonsense? So why... (laughs) <laughs> have we put it on all the front pages? And why do you get people... Because people love reading BBC it. We want people to buy newspapers. This is, no, this is a huge crisis for the royalty. They actually say it. They say it's a huge crisis for the royalty. Isn't, isn't it, though, because if you sign up to the idea of a royal family, and lots of people don't, but if you sign up to the idea of a royal family and it's all based on who is born into it, you can't. it can't become optional whether or not you are in or out of it. But of course it can. But then doesn't that undermine the whole principle of it? Uh, No, not necessarily. All you really need for a royal family to work is king-queen, next king-queen, 
and possibly if you're really kind of king queen after that. We've got all that. We've got all that in spades. We've got loads of them, etc. You don't need everybody else. And they've been sensible in other countries by cutting away the everybody else's because they recognise, firstly, that having everybody else around is a recipe for trouble because the more of them there are, the more things that can go effectively go wrong. Uh, and they also realise really, that the celebritization, incredible celebritization of royal families is problematic in itself. Now, why would you I mean, take how I'm because actually what this is is a continuation of the Diana story. That's what it is. It's the it's the next ramification of it. A generation down. Boy incredibly scarred by the experience of his mother, has uh, interpreted in this kind of way and doesn't want to be that person. It was always going to happen. What amazes me is that they've been so slow to understand that they had to act. Well, actually, it doesn't amaze me. Thank come to think about it, given the row that there's been and the fuss there's been, uh, I can quite see why they've been slow about it. What I what what it's difficult to explain to people who, who think this is all important is why it isn't, why they can quite happily slough off to Canada, leaving loads of loads of royals around to take to, 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 to take up the slack but the important thing is they've set an, a good precedent which is that in the future other people will be able to do a bit of this and we might have a little bit less unhappy, ha- unhappiness of people essentially born into gilded servitude which is what they are James you wrote about this in the Times last week I think and you had some sympathy with them so I think one of the most interesting points about the weirdness of the royal family was made by Ian Wilson in his recent biography of Prince Albert, where he points out that the modern idea of the royal family was invented by Prince Albert, who wanted to reinvent Queen Victoria's husband, who wanted to reinvent the royal family in the model of a chaste, hardworking, sober, responsible, Victorian upper-middle-class family to make them more acceptable to the Victorian public, completely unlike the sort of mad Hanoverians with their endless mistresses and crises. That vision of a royal family is totally incompatible with the modern media. You can't have huge celebrity attention on a family and then expect to find that when you put cameras into every aspect of their lives that they're going to church every morning and they're working hard and they're having nice conversations over breakfast. That's completely unrealistic. And the fact it's managed to last, those two things have managed to remain in tension for this long, I think is probably down to the Queen who seems like an incredibly unusual person in the fact that she does seem to have a very sober, careful, private life, is able to fanatically suppress her own opinions and her own views on anything. And she has managed to kind of help this strange, old-fashioned model of royalty exist weirdly far into the future mm. um, and changes long overdue. And it, I mean, as David says, it is completely inevitable. And I think Meghan Markle is the new Prince Albert. She's going to help reinvent... <laughs> the royal family and maybe i mean i think they maybe dislike her a lot but she's probably prince charles's best friend in his attempt to sort of slim down the monarchy and the idea that being part of the royal family is optional seems to make complete sense to me because it's a crazy thing to be part of and no one one should be forced to experience all that lucy do you think that part of why people are so agitated about all this is that if they'd got married and made this decision and cleared off that would have been one thing. But having spent the last whatever it is, two years lecturing people about the use of social media while pumping out stuff on Instagram, telling people to do something about climate change while flying on private jets around the world, uh, complaining about media intrusion while guest editing Vogue, uh, you can't, essentially, you can't have it both ways. And they, you know, they've bought a lot of the press attention on themselves because they wanted to use it for their cup. You can't, in the modern world, as James was saying, you can't have your cake and eat it in terms of media interest. 
Yeah, I think that's true to a certain extent. I think, you know, there have been a, a lot of claims of hypocrisy. And I think part of that comes from the sort of lack of self-awareness, the self-absorption that's sort of both sort of familiar to royalty and Hollywood stars. So uh, <laughs> they're sort of probably well matched in that. I don't know that the, they are that, that sort of hated by the, the public or the media, though. You know, I think there's a huge sort of um, upswell of um, good f- feeling about the wedding, you know, the, 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 the first sort of... Um, you know, um, half black woman was joining the royal family. It was just a kind of there was so much goodwill around that. To my mind, I don't think people will be would be too angry about them seeking to leave or change their relationship with the royal family. Um, I don't think the timing matter, matters per se, whether it's when they got married or a year or two after. I think the way in which they've done it is just so extraordinarily badly handled. They're they're clearly badly advised or headstrong in ignoring their advisors as, as we're told by reports. And I think when you look at the Queen, you know, someone who is now 93 and has dedicated her life to service, it is a bit of a slap in the face um, to her to put out this statement without even consulting her and, you know, sort of slightly condescending to say they'll collaborate with her as though <laughs> some sort of social media tie-in, you know. There's a sort of, there's a naffness to it. But at the heart of it, I, you know, to go back to David's question, you know, who cares? I think the reason people do care and the reason I'm interested um, for once in it is because it's such a family psychodrama. It's just, it's a, it's a microcosm of, you know, something that happens in private households across the land. I just want to say something about the, the, the way you framed it, because it's the way we do this, Matt. What we say is uh, they brought it upon themselves because they're hypocritical and so on. Uh, and this is what allows us to be hugely hypocritical. <laughs> um, and, and it, it always is. I mean, I, 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 sometimes being, inside, you know, in past days, being inside, inside some of the council of the BBC, while they talked about how they were going to handle a story that the sun or the tabloids had broken, which actually was too tawdry for them, but they knew all their listeners and viewers were interested in how they were kind of justified to themselves, the fact that they were going to cover it, is sort of, kind of slightly different. We wouldn't not have done this if they had eschewed a lot of this from from the beginning nothing would have made uh megan markle acceptable in the eyes of you know people like piers morgan nothing um that was always going to happen it's well, the her, way ma- they- her main crime seems to have been that they used to go for drinks and they don't anymore that's yeah and, and that's that, particularly that, upset yeah, you can see why in the case of uh, a kind of mega narcissist like him that is problematic and we and we have a public culture which fosters that kind of narcissism uh and and rewards it so a significant part of this is actually Actually, uh, down to us. So, so what I'm saying is, really, there is no kind of easy, tight, well-advised way of stepping out of this necessarily that ordinary people or actual people would be able to take. It's not the kind of smooth machine. The other thing I'd say about it is, I do find it slightly unbelievable that every time a, something is issued from the palace in the name of the Queen, everybody thinks it's the Queen that said it. Of course, it isn't the Queen that said it. It isn't the Queen that she. I don't believe for five seconds she's running everything now. Um, Who pardon? is running it? The lizards? No, I think I think Prince Charles's office is running uh, most of it, and on the whole, running it rather well. And I think when you when you begin to see those bits of it which are kind of more accommodating and slightly more kind of understanding, and see the way in which this is tending, more strategic, if you like, I like to think, and maybe I'm wrong, that this is actually coming from Charles, who. I've come to think of, actually, despite all the bad press he's got over the years, some of it uh, from us, is actually going to be a pretty canny holder of the office when he gets it. Probably the interesting thing about Charles is that he's lived through a version of it all before and he knows quite how horribly badly it can go wrong when the royal family tries to control an incredibly popular figure who's joined it from outside. Um, I I thought 
a brilliant um, piece on this was Janice Turner's piece in the paper on Saturday when she talks about how the royal family could potentially be completely eclipsed in terms of fame and influence by Harry and Meghan if they decide to go to America and spend time on Oprah and do their Instagram posts and just build up a huge following across the world. And what seems to be happening, especially from the Queen's statement um, that was in the paper this morning, is that they've just accepted they can't fight them. Their best bet in terms of their own survival is to accommodate them and let them do their thing. Because if they pick a fight with Harry and Meghan, they're picking a fight with people who could be just as influential, if not more, than they are, and have potentially more public sympathy behind them. But you've got to remember here that the royal family is 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 in a reactive uh, mode here. You know, I, I feel that you know I don't know particularly why I'm choosing to de- de- defend uh, the firm, but you know I think there's been a, some sort of criticism or suggestion there of nastiness on 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 their side since this announcement came out from from Harry and Meghan. And I, you know, if you cut through all the all the chaff and exactly. and the and the tittle tattle, actually. They've had a meeting and they put out a statement saying, yeah, this is great. There'll be a transition period. There's a bit more work, a few, few other things to work through. And we hope to have decisions soon. My, my main objection to the statement was everyone was very excited to use the word family eight times, including three times in one sentence. I thought you won't get that past the time subs normally. They definitely try to be Googling for synonyms of um, family. Just before we finish, I feel like we should also touch on because lots of people have pointed this out. Prince Harry does seem to be getting more grief for stepping aside from the royal family than his uncle Andrew got when he was had to step aside for hanging out with a paedophile, which actually is frankly a much bigger problem potentially. This represents... Well, actually, I think this represents almost a tabloid agenda, really. Um, it's the way the narrative is supposed to work. You, bet your, you, you put your bet on a narrative that you've established of who's good. Somebody's done a compilation of... Uh, things that Meghan Markle has done and things that Kate have done, which are the same thing with the completely different opposite response. One of them is, oh, look at Kate, she's doing rather well. And Meghan Markle does evil thing with avocado. Um, <laughs> which kind of, uh, and it is really kind of rather remarkable. It fits into the notion that we, into a narrative that started quite early, we are disappointed in her. She's taking it Although a long I way. Also remember she's that- Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth is always a big fan. I, I also remember a point when Meghan was first on the scene where... There were lots of stories about how brilliant Meghan was and how boring and uninteresting and unhelpful and yes. not very nice Kate was. I mean, you could probably find stories about Kate doing the two same things. Oh, I didn't say tabloids stick to their own no. narrative. What I'm saying is they kind of establish them and then kind of go with them. Yeah, yeah. It's quite possible that in two years' time, uh, Meghan Markle will give some kind of mega interview to The Sun or to The or to the Daily Mail. And after that, we'll have five years of saying how wonderful well, she how is wonderful now. Was. What, a, what a stroke of genius the yeah. whole thing was. Well, I think we've covered a full gamut there. 2020 is bringing us... Uh, lots more things to talk about my thanks to uh, david james and lucy don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on apple Acast, spotify or wherever you listen and sign up to my morning email at the times.co.uk forward slash red box but for now for me matt Chorley, it's goodbye hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 